Let's pray. Father, you are worthy, worthy to be praised. So we praise you this morning uh, to the best of our abilities. And Father, we thank you uh, for your kindness to us. Thank you for bringing us all here this morning uh, to hear from you, from your word. Father, would you help us? We desire above everything to please you. Help us to do that. Help me to teach. Help me to direct uh, the people that you love uh, into your word so that we can all be your kind of people. And Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. That was beautiful, by the way. <laughs> That's really, really beautiful. Well, it is a blessing to be with you this morning. Uh, I'm usually in the boys' Sunday school class teaching, not sitting in there, but teaching. Um, but it's good to be out here with the adults this morning. Um, but it is good to see all of you. We're starting a series this morning. It'll be five weeks. It'll be interrupted one week uh, on biblical parenting. And if you look on the back side of your handout, if you didn't get one, they're back there at the table. Uh, there's a schedule there. Uh, you can see we're we trying to map out what we're going to be doing, uh, the course we want to chart. And the schedule is there really for you so that you can see uh, what sessions, what lessons you can skip. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, the reality is uh, none of us have it all down, right? Now, you can't look at that and say, oh, okay, I have, I've got my roles down, I've got discipline down, I've got child training down. Man, these, I thought this was going to be helpful. Uh, no, we're all in progress. Uh, none of us have arrived. We're all imperfect and will always be imperfect parents, even on the other side of this five-week series on biblical parenting. I know you're not surprised by that. I know. I heard the groans. <laughs> um, but there's good news. Let me encourage you. Uh, God is not looking for perfect parents. Right? He is the only perfect parent. And praise God that he's made provision for all of us imperfect parents in Christ. He understands our frame, right? He remembers that we are but dust. So at the end of the day, at the end of our lives, at the end of our children's lives, our children will be what they are, not because we did things perfectly. They will be what they are. Any good in them will be because of God's grace alone. And we never want to forget that, especially as we're thinking about Biblical principles for parenting. And you think, if I can just plug in these six principles, then I'll get um, the Apostle Paul. Uh, it doesn't work that way. And you don't want the Apostle Paul, at least early on. Um, the good news is that God is not looking for perfect parents. He's looking for parents to make progress. Each one of you to make progress towards God's perfect standard. And our hope is that this series on biblical parenting will help you do that. Help you make progress towards the goal. Uh, we're all working towards something, something that we have not yet attained. And that really is godliness. Now, before we dive in, some of you are thinking, five-week series on parenting. I was done with that 15 years ago, or I never started that. Uh, well, we have uh, four groups of people in mind. As we're working through these lessons, there are four groups of people in mind. Obviously, the first group is parents. Uh, that's a good number of you here this morning. Many of our parents, though, are teaching in these Sunday school classes. But if you're a parent, we encourage you, as you come week in and week out, to listen carefully. 
Listen carefully, take notes, and take your responsibility before God uh, to steward this precious life He's entrusted into your care with uh, the sort of seriousness that it demands. All right, so listen, take notes, evaluate uh, what we're saying uh, against God's Word. Our target is to help you understand God's Word. Understand it. Understand what God says about parenting. Now, let me just say, if you have not studied what God's Word says about parenting, then you're probably doing it wrong. (laughs) Uh, Because you don't accidentally fall into doing things biblically. right? You don't accidentally become Christ-like. You don't fall into godliness. Uh, That takes work and effort and diligence. So I want to encourage you uh, to go to the Word of God. Uh, hear uh, what we have to say over the next few weeks and learn from the Lord and do what He calls you to do. That's the first group, parents. Second group is grandparents. Now, how many of you are grandparents? All right, that's a good number. Good number of grandparents. You've been given, you already know this, but I'll remind you, you've been given by God a unique opportunity to influence your grown kids and your grandchildren in remarkable ways. As Randy Patton said not too long ago, that our society says your responsibility is just to spoil them and send them home. That's what society says. But we know better than that. We know God's perspective is far different than the perspective that we see in our culture. That grandparents have an impressive degree of influence. And our target is we want to help you lay hold of that influence and, and steward this grandchild and even your grown child and help them, help them to be faithful, help them to reach the target that God set for biblical parents. So don't tune out if you're a grandparent. Now the third group is future parents. You want to be a parent, you want to have children, you're married. Um, Of course, if you are in this position, you need to listen closely uh, if you want to learn what God says about parenting. Now there's a fourth group that I want to spend a little bit more time on because that's, there's a a large number of you here, uh, that's those who interact with children or their parents, period. Now, if you're here this morning, that includes you, all right? If you're single, no children, not married, do you interact with children? If your answer is yes, then listen closely to what we have to say. All of us interact with parents and their children Sunday, every Sunday, day in, day out, during the week. And we all have, whether you're married or childless, we all have a unique unique influence and an opportunity to shape the kids that God has sovereignly brought into our lives. If you're here and you're sitting next to a parent and you're not a parent, God has brought you here for a very specific purpose. You have the capacity to influence parents and children in a way that you, obvious, or you often forget. Not obviously forget. <laughs> I'm here to remind you. Um, let me prove this to you. All right? Let me prove that you are, if you're a single, unmarried person, that you have profound influence on children, and more than you even know. We're all the product of the shaping influences on our lives now, these influences are not determinative. They don't make us who we are necessarily. 
but they do form us into the people we are. Now, how many of you were influenced by someone in your childhood or teen years who was not your mom, dad, um, uncle, brother? How many? Raise your hand. Right. We have all been profoundly influenced by singles, married, um, grandparents, aunts, uncles. God gives us, God gives singles, childless couples, profound powers of influence over children. And the problem, though, is that we are, when we are single or childless, we often miss the profundity or the power of the influence we have. So if you're single not married, childless, listen, uh, you have an influence, all right? Many of you are influencing my children, all right? And I want, uh, I want that to continue, and I want more of you to, to be engaged in this work of shaping our children for the glory of God. So, don't sit there and, and think, this is not relevant to me this morning, okay? If you hit any of those four categories, the last category is the catch-all category, right? If you have breath this morning, you, you meet the fourth category, all right? So this is important. Listen. All right. So these are the categories. Parents, grandparents, future parents, and anyone connected to them, all right? Now, when we talk about parenting, we have to begin with the goal. The goal. What is the goal of biblical parenting? I wonder how you would answer that. What is your what is your goal in parenting? Have you went to the Word and derived a target for yourself and for your family? Have you done that? Do you have a goal? Well, the answer to that is yes. You have a goal. right? Written, expressed, or not, you have a goal. But the question is, is your goal God's goal? You don't want to find yourself working in a different direction than the creator of your child. That's a, not a position you want to be in. But if you have lived, you have children, if you've not set yourself to know God's word, and, and specifically what God says about parenting, you are most likely operating from an unbiblical goal for parenting. So take this time in the next four or five weeks as we think about what God says about parenting, and formulate your goal. I'm going to give you one this morning, and you can look at it, take it, leave it, whatever you want to do with it. I think it's biblical. I would encourage you to keep it. Um, but you need to formulate a target, all right, as a parent, grandparent, future parent, influencer of children. You need to have a target, and I'll give you one of those. But let's look at some un- unbiblical targets. All right, there are all sorts of misguided goals for parenting. Right, you know these, so we'll speed through them relatively, relatively quickly. The first, I would think, is quality of life. Quality of life. My goal is to give my child a better upbringing than I had. If I do that, I'm satisfied. There's a constant comparison to bringing up your child uh, to the way that you were brought up, and there's a sense of pride that the quality of life that you're giving your child is better than what you received. And so that becomes your goal, because it feels good. My children are doing better than I was when I was their age. I just want them to have a better life than I did. Now that's, a, that's great, but it's an unworthy goal. Right? It's an unworthy goal. What about morality? 
My goal is to help my child become a good human. One of the top selling books right now on Amazon is titled Raising Good Humans, a mindful guide to breaking the cycle of reactive parenting and raising kind, confident kids. Raising Good Humans. Another bestseller titled No Drama Discipline, the whole brain way to calm the chaos and nurture your child's developing mind, says the goal in parenting is to help children become good people who are happy, successful, kind, responsible, self-disciplined. Right? You don't need me to tell you that's an unbiblical goal. Right? Being a good human is not enough. It's not enough. Third, independence. My goal is to help my child become independent. This is a common goal in our culture. If you Google what is the goal of parenting, this will come up. And, and I did that, and it linked me to a website called Quora, where you can, essentially it's a knowledge database where you can ask any question and professionals answer. If you're not familiar with that, it's entertaining to say the least. Um, <laughs> independence was at the top of the chart. And so I just pulled a couple of quotes from here. Let me share these with you. Uh, the ultimate goal of parenting, says one uh, person out there in the world, is to no longer need to parent. From the moment a child is born, it moves in increasing increments towards independence. The goal is to be no longer needed, but hopefully still chosen to be included in your child's life and the lives of your grandchildren. Now this one, the next one's pretty funny. The goal of parenting is to produce an offspring that can survive. Provide food, shelter, protection from harm. Teach them to fend for themselves and teach them how to find, sorry, teach them how to find or get food. And provide emotional support. Now that is not, I promise you, that's not from Petco's website. (laughs) It sounds like it is. But that is someone's goal for biblical parenting. Or not biblical parenting, parenting. (laughs) They need to know God's goal, I think. Fourth, self-actualization. I hear this a lot, honestly, and not just in the world, but in our own circles. Self-actualization, we would never call it that, but it's, it's something like this. My goal is to help my child satisfy their internal drive to become their unique self. Right? I don't want to impose my standards or God's standards on them because I don't want to restrict them from becoming uh, who they are. Right? Parents essentially meet the basic needs of the child so that the child has the freedom to blossom into who they really are. You don't want to restrict that. Now, this is an unbiblical goal, of course, right? We, we know that. However, there's, there are just elements of this that you hear from time to time. Uh, and I don't want to start teaching that lesson now. But if you listen over the next few weeks, you'll hear us. I think we'll address that at least in discipline or child training. Uh, that's not the target. If you let your, your child self-actualize, he will be a heathen, pagan, uh, and you will have a mess and a wreck on your hands. Okay. Fifth, well-skilled. My goal is to help my child acquire skills, talents. Sixth, well-educated. My goal is to give my child the best education possible. Uh, seventh, my goal is to help my child acquire the social graces for success in life, to be well-behaved. Now, those are all great things, right? We want them to know how to sit in a chair and not pick their nose in public and uh, not bite other people. We want them to know that. Those are good goals. 
uh, but they're unworthy goals in the ultimate sense, right? We, we have to have something more sh- sure, more firm. What about number eight? Salvation. My goal is to see my child come to trust in Christ. Now, surely that would be the right goal. I don't think so, and I'll, I'll show you why. Now, you guys could look at at least seven of these, and probably all eight, and see that they're misguided goals, right? Many of them are blatantly obvious, uh, so I don't want to go through all of the critiques of each goal. Uh, But let me share with you one critique that may not be so obvious with all of these eight goals. What is the common denominator in each one of these goals? Well, we, we could probably find several. Uh, it's slightly complicated. But one that jumps out to me is this. Each one of these goals are outcome-oriented. They're outcome-oriented. I want my child to become blank. A good human, right? As good as my dog. <laughs> uh, I want my child to become well-educated, to become a Christian, to become... Fill in the blank. The focus is on outcomes. Now, there, here then is the problem with this sort of goal. Right? Here, here's the problem with an outcome-oriented goal for parenting. You cannot control outcomes. You can't do it. You cannot control outcomes. Outcomes belong to God. Those are God's. For example... Can you save your child? Can you ensure that they repent and trust in Christ? No, you can't do that because that's God's work. Right? It's not yours to accomplish. So insofar as you try to accomplish that goal in the life of your child, you will exasperate them and yourself. Right? If you try to save them, you don't have the power to do that. Right? You don't have the utility, the capacity to give them a new heart. Right? That's beyond the pale of your responsibility. All right? Those outcomes belong to God. You can shape and influence your child to an amazing degree. And you will, for the good or bad, you will shape them to an amazing degree. But you cannot accomplish their salvation, right? You can't accomplish any. I mean, you can set as a target any of these goals, but they're all outcomes-oriented. What should, if we make outcomes the focus of our, our goal in parenting, then we're, I think we're, we're putting, it's a category confusion, essentially. Right? God is in charge of those. We have another responsibility. Now that brings us to this series of lessons. What is our responsibility? What should our goal be? What can you do as a parent, uh, child influencer? What can you do? If I can't save them, if I can't do all these other things, what can I do? Well, let me tell you what you can do. You can be faithful. You can be faithful. With God's help, you can be God's kind of parent For your child. Success in biblical parenting is not the salvation of your child. It's not the education of the child. The financial prosperity of the child. Etc. But the faithfulness of the parent. 
the faithfulness of the parent. True success in parenting is measured by the parent's own faithfulness to God's revealed will. And where has God revealed His will? In His Word. Right? John MacArthur captures this well in his book, What the Bible Says About Parenting. If we measure our success as parents solely by what our children become, that's outcome-oriented, there is no inviolable guarantee in Scripture that we will experience absolute success on those terms, on the terms of outcomes. Sometimes children raised in fine Christian families grow up to abandon the faith. On the other hand, the Lord graciously redeems many children whose parents were utter failures. I and mean, Many of you could testify to that. The outcome of the child as a factor taken by itself is no reliable gauge of the parent's success. It's a marker. It's an indicator. But it's not the mark, ultimately, of success. It's not the target. However, says MacArthur, the true measure of success for Christian parents is the parent's own character. To the degree that we have followed God's design for parenting, we have succeeded as parents before God. Faithfulness. Faithfulness to God is the target in parenting. Your own faithfulness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 4. Too. I want to I show this to you. And I'm going to fill the essentially fill out for us a goal for biblical parenting in the next few minutes. And this is the start of it, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 2. Now Paul, in 1 Corinthians 4, he's talking about his own ministry uh, before the Lord. In verse 1, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants. That's a, a subordinate rower, an under rower, someone who's just an assistant to someone. As assistants or servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Right, steward there is the word for like a manager, a house manager. Someone who manages the proper, property of another. All right? and, and what here is Paul stewarding in verse 1? 1 Corinthians 4 verse 1. What's Paul a steward of? The mysteries of God. All right, that's... We could put that in a, in a word as the Bible, the Word of God, right? the mysteries of God. This is God's salvation plan unfolding. And Paul says, I'm a steward of that. I'm a servant to Christ. I'm an assistant. Right? I'm, a, I'm, I'm here for him. I do what he wants me to do. And I'm a steward of what he's entrusted to me, namely the Word of God. And verse 2, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Now the word here is pistis, which is faith or believing, and is often in contexts like this translated as faithful, right? Full of faith, reliable, trustworthy. That's the, that's the target. So a, a steward, again, here, is someone who is the overseer or manager of the possessions of someone else, all right? It's one who has the authority and responsibility for something does, that does not ultimately belong to him. That's a steward. Now, fundamental to parenting faithfully is understanding that your kids are not your kids. They don't belong to you. They are not your property. 
They're God's property, and they belong to him. If you're going to be a faithful parent, you've got to get that. All right, let me, and I want to show you that that's true. Because you might be thinking, well, those are, they're a gift from us. Children are a gift from the Lord. Right, so that is my part. If you give a gift, you can't take it back. Well, let's, let's think about that. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 139. I want to show you that your kids are God's property, and he cares deeply about them. Psalm 139, uh, beginning in verse 1. David is, is reminiscing on the omnipresence and omniscience of God. He's, all, he's everywhere. He's all-knowing. And he's reflecting on this. And in verse 1, he says, O Lord, or Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. Now, is that true of your kids? You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down. And are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. And laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Now why does God have such intimate knowledge of David? It's a great question. Let me jump down to verse 13. Four. It's a causal conjunction. Here's the reason why I know everything about you, David. Here it is. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw or have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. He knows everything about David because he made David. From the womb, God had said, this one is mine. I'm making him for myself. And he keeps a watch over the things that belong to him. He knows everything about him because he carefully crafted him. Now in Psalm 22, verse 9 and 10, David says this, Yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You brought me forth from the womb. He crafts you, right? He crafts your child in the womb of the mother. And then, Psalm 22, 9 You brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust upon my mother's breasts. God did that. Why? Because he loves this little life. He made it. It's his. If if you don't make the child love your mother's breasts, it's not going to eat. He loves it. He keeps it. Upon you I was cast from birth. You just thought your child was cast upon you, mom. From birth. No. You were a means to an end. God was working to preserve this life. And you were the one he chose. He says, you have been my God from my mother's womb. Wow. That, that is powerful. You've been my God from my mother's womb. God delivers his children from the womb because he loves them. He sets them aside from birth and diligently keeps them, and they are his possession. 
right? He, he, they're his possession, so he takes care of them. Now, Psalm 127.3 does say, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Right? They are his possession, but he uses means to take care of his possessions. And you, parent, you are that means. Right? He loves this life, and he's put it into your care. Now, Psalm 127.3 is, is really powerful because the Lord says, Children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. That should be the tone of our parenting. This is sort of a tangent that I'm going to get on for just a second. Parenting is not misery. It's not painful. I mean, it is painful. But it's not primarily um, characterized by pain, difficulty, sorrow. Children are a gift from the Lord. What do you do with gifts? You enjoy them. They are a reward. Read the tone. Read Psalm 127. Right? Now, if that's not the tone of your home, you're, there's elements that is in your home or in your home that are not functioning God's way. Now, I'll say that's true for me, and that's true for Jason, right? We're all in this progress together, process together. But God's design is that this parenting process should be one of joy, right? It should be happy. It should be full of life because God says, here's this wonderful thing I made, right? I've cared for it from the womb, out of the womb. I'm, I'm taking care of it all along the way. I'm making it love these things to keep it, preserve its life. Now I'm going to let you take care of it, and you should enjoy it, right? But don't think along the way that now this is yours and you do what you want with it. Right. This is what Israel thought. And I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 16. This is going to seem like a step in a strange direction. Um, <laughs> uh, but Israel thought somewhere along the way that God's gifts to them became their own. And now they could do with it whatever they wanted. Right. So Ezekiel 16. Uh, this is just a powerful chapter where God says he came to Israel when they were essentially abandoned. Right? They were helpless, hopeless. Um, if God would not have come to them, they would have died. And he lavished them with all these good things. Blessing upon blessing, gift upon gift. And he is just remarkably kind to them. And then in verse 14 of chapter 16, he says, Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty. Not a beauty that you acquired for yourself, but that God accomplished. He says, For it was perfect. Because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, I gave you beauty. And all of a sudden, you started thinking it was for yourself, and you got proud. Right? Then verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. You poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes made from yourself, high, made from yourself, high places of various colors, and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. Now notice this next verse. You also took your beautiful jewels made of, whose gold? My gold. And of my silver, which I had given you. But, I, but you gave it to us, God. We could do it whatever we wanted to. Not in God's economy. And you made for yourself images that you might play the harlot with them. Verse 18, then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. But God, I acquired this with my own money and effort and work. Nope, that's not how it works in my economy. Who gave you the strength to get that? This is mine. 
Verse 19, also my bread, which I gave you. You gave us the bread. Isn't it mine? Nope, it's still mine. Fine flour, oil, and honey, which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Now verse 20, moreover, on top of it all, of all the gifts I gave you that you thought were yours and you could do with whatever you wanted, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotry so small a matter? You slaughtered whose children? My children. And offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. You slaughtered my children. Your children are not your own. They are entrusted to you as a gift, but they belong to God. Don't forget that. If you're going to be faithful, you've got to remember that fundamental reality of parenting is that these these are entrusted lives into your hands for a season. And the word here, well, he says, you slaughtered my children. Uh, This word, uh, moving forward, sorry, you slaughtered my children, they belong to me, indicates that uh, parenting is itself a stewardship. They're gods and we steward them. Now, Luke 16, 1-2, let me share this with you. Uh, this is a, in the New Testament, the word stewardship occurs, I think, maybe eight or ten times in these ten verses. Luke 16, 1-10. It's translated as the word manager, uh, but it's really powerful to think about it. Luke 16, verse 1, it says, There was a rich man who had a manager, or a steward. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting for your management or your stewardship, for you can no longer be a manager. And Jesus uses this to teach that every one of us will give an account to God for our stewardship, for how we're treating, how we're stewarding God's possessions. That's true in finances, that's true in your physical strength, your mind, your mental capacities your youth. Um, It's also true of parenting. We'll all give an account for our management. Now here's the question. How will you stand? How How are you faring right now in stewarding this life that God loves and God made and kept from the womb until now and is entrusted into your care? How are you how are you doing? How's your stewardship looking? In his book, Withhold Not Correction, Bruce Ray puts it this way. God has entrusted with the fruit of the womb. Nothing in all of creation is more valuable. The Lord opens the womb and gives a child, perhaps several, to a man and his wife to manage and to raise to maturity. This is a stewardship. Though our children are flesh of our flesh, we don't own them. They're not ours. We are responsible to manage them for another who has made them for himself. All right. So, what then does the master require of us? He's given them to us to take care or to influence, if you're not a parent, to influence and shape. What does the master require? What does he want us to do with these precious lives that he has entrusted to our care? For what will we be held account 
Well, the most succinct, I think, statement on parenting is Ephesians 6.4 in the Scriptures. Ephesians 6.4 says this, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. All right? Negative. This is, God, this is what God is saying to his stewards. All right? Father, you're a steward. You have children or you influence children. Don't provoke my children to anger. First. Second. And this is a, little more, well, a lot more positive. <laughs> but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up. This is what I want you to do with them in the years that you have with them. Raise them. Don't let them just come up. You have to shape them. You have to form them into the kind of kids I want them to be. Implication, that won't happen by accident. You've got to work at it. And it says, bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Of the Lord. Now there's a lot to be said about that, and we have weeks ahead of us where we'll say that, Lord willing. But I want to key in on this last phrase, of the Lord. It's not your preferences. It's not your wants, wills, or desires that should determine how you bring up your child. It's the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's His standard. It's His discipline. It's His instruction. It's His training. He wants that from you. So the account you give to Him will be based on that instruction. Have you done this? So let me sort of tie all that together into one definition based on these verses. And I give that to you uh, in your handout. Here's what I see to be the goal of biblical parenting. Biblical parenting, the goal, is to be a faithful steward of your child by actively bringing them up according to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The goal of biblical parenting is to be a faithful steward of your child by actively bringing them up according to the discipline and instruction of the Lord. You cannot control the outcome of your child's life. Some of you are experiencing that right now. You wish you could, but you can't. It's hard. That's not your responsibility. But with God's help, you can be faithful to him. You can be a faithful steward, a faithful instrument in his hands to shape your child into God's kind of kid. Now, how do we do that? All right, how do we do that? How do we be faithful? It's easy to say, yeah, let's just be faithful. It's nice and general, and it's comfortable. Right? We can be faithful. But let me give you four commitments. I think if you're going to be a faithful parent, you need these four commitments. First, turn in your Bible to Matthew 22, 35 to 40. Uh, The first commitment is that you must have, if you're going to be faithful, a commitment to the Lord Jesus. That must be your commitment. Matthew 22, 35 to 40. A lawyer comes up to Jesus, asks him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he says to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. All right, That's the great and foremost commandment. All your heart, all your soul, all your mind. And Mark adds, all your strength. So you just probably said that on another occasion. Now that's comprehensive loyalty. Right? Comprehensive love. There's no part of you that's outside of the yoke of Christ. You are fully committed to the Lord. Entire comprehensive love. He is to be 
the chief object of your love and your attention, not your children. Your children are not the center of your life. This is the issue, I mean, one of the many issues we face as parents is our parents or our children quickly become the hub of our life, right? Everything revolves around them, right? We orbit around them, right? And if we do that, what are we teaching our kids? (laughs) When you leave here and you go out into the world, who's going to revolve around you? The world, right? We do it. This is your little world. And when you go out, the same thing's going to happen when you get to college or wherever. And then they're, you know, they're, rudely awakened, that that's not reality. Well, part of our responsibility is helping our children learn how to live in an adult world, right? This is not a world ran by kids, although it seems like it sometimes. Um, Our responsibility is help them be faithful in this big world where adults rule, right? Kids are not ruling. It does seem like it, but that's not the case, right? They live in a world that's far bigger than them, uh, where people around them are all bigger than them. They talk louder than them and deeper than them, and it's frightening and scary. Our responsibility is to help them be faithful, to learn how to live in God's world. And they don't need to be at the center of that because that's not where they should live, right? They don't need to be the center of their own lives. They don't need to be the center of your home because they will never be the center of the world uh, onto eternity, right? Someone else gets to occupy the center, and that's Jesus, right? And your commitment to Christ is a model for your kids that I love you. Right? But I have a responsibility before God to do this other thing right now. I'll play Legos with you when, the, when I have time in a few minutes. But right now, this is my obligation to the Lord. And say it that way. Right? You're training your children. You're not number one. I love you so much, but you're not number one. God is number one. And our house orbits around him. And l- let me share with you an example of what this looks like. Man, this always happens. Time. Time runs away. Um, Scottish missionary John Patton, he was a missionary to a string of islands off the coast of Australia in the 19th century, and in his autobiography, he was reflecting on the, his upbringing, right, the influence that his mom and dad had on him, and it, he starts off by talking about the way the house was built and the structure and all this, and you think, oh, okay, this is like a, what is this, like an architecture book, you know, it's very detailed, and then he gets to this spot, the closet was a very small apartment between the other two main rooms, having room for only one bed, a little table and a chair, with a small window shedding small light on the scene. This was the sanctuary of our cottage home. There daily, and oftentimes a day, generally after each meal, we saw our father. We saw him. We saw him retire and shut to the door. And we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct that prayers were being poured out there for us as of old by the high priest within the veil in the most holy place. We occasionally, he writes, heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life. And we learned to slip out and in past the door on tiptoe, not to disturb his holy conversation. And the outside world might not know But we knew whence came that happy light of as a newborn smile that was always dawning my father's face. It was a reflection from the divine presence in the consciousness of which he lived. And then he writes, Never in temple or cathedral or mountain or in glen can I hope to feel that the Lord God 
is more near, more visibly walking and talking with men than under that humble cottage roof of thatch and oaken wattles. He says, though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet. And hearing the still echoes of those cries from my father would hurl back all doubt with a victorious appeal. He walked with God Why may not I? Nearness to Christ, sorry, nearness to Christ, commitment to Christ produces warmth and love that your children will never forget. Right? It's powerful. You want to talk about influences? Love Jesus in your home. Love Jesus in front of your kids. Be committed to Him above everything else, and the influence of that will be profound. All right? Be committed to him. And I'm going to have to jump a lot of stuff here. Um, of course, commitment to Christ doesn't just look like you going alone in your closet to pray. It does. Your, your children should hear you pray. You sh- they should hear you pray. God, help us be better parents. Help us be your kind of mom and dad. We fail. Help us, Lord. We need your grace. They should hear you pray that. They know you fail. <laughs> but do you know you fail? Um, and you do. We all feel the weight of it. Um, but that's where we rely on God's grace at the end and say, okay, we joined with Paul. We worked harder than everyone. But in the end, it's God's grace that was work, working within us and through our kids. But it doesn't look like just going into your prayer closet. No, it looks like obedience, right? True love expresses itself in obedience to God. This is the way that Jesus says in John 14. He says, um, Let me read this to you really quickly. And several, a string of verses, he says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He says, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he goes on and on. Multiple statements about obedience and love. And then he gets to this last one in verse 31. He says, So that the world may know that I love the Father. I tell them about it. I take them to synagogue. Uh, I make sure that they're reading their Bible all the time. I make sure I do family devotions. I make sure I do this, this, or this. Nope. So that the world may know that I love the Father, I do exactly as the Father commanded me. How do you express your love to Jesus? Do what he says. Submit to him. Be his kind of person in your home. Be his kind of mom, his kind of dad, his kind of grandparent, his kind of influencer. All right? Now, there's so much more to say about that, but let me give you some questions to diagnose your heart. Ask yourself, am I fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I fully committed to raising my children God's way? Am I willing to obey whatever he calls me to do, even in the things I don't like? Maybe that's spanking them, withholding not the rod. Well, if if you're convinced that this is God's way, how you feel about it, in one sense, does not matter. right? What matters is, doing what God calls you to do, right? Feelings follow, all right? But the important thing is to do. Jesus says, by this they'll know that I am of the Father, that I do what he says, right? Do what he says. Am I actively trusting in the Lord with the results 
of my child? Am I actively trusting the Lord with the results of my child and putting my effort in being God's kind of parent? Are you doing that? I have five more x-ray questions. If you want to know them, I can talk to you afterwards. So that's commitment number one. Commitment to the Lord and being his kind of parent. Uh, Commitment, ultimately, though, in a word to Jesus. All right? The second commitment, if you're going to be faithful, is a commitment to your spouse. All right? You want to hear more about that? Come here next week. Um, I will just say quickly, Genesis 2.24 says that the husband and wife relationship is a one flesh union. And Jesus says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. All right? Your children do not exist in a one flesh union with you. Right? They are not a one flesh union. Actually, the same text says they are actually, that union will end. And they need to, it needs to end. Right? They need to leave. And Praise God in our culture, that's around 18. Um, I love my kids, but I also love my wife. Um, That's our priority, is one another, our one flesh union. That has to be your priority. Your children will leave, right? A son or a child shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Right? They need to leave, and you need to get them ready to do that. Amen? (laughs) All right, you need to be committed to your spouse. Third, you need to be committed to your family. And this will be the last point here. Deuteronomy 6. I want you to turn there really quickly. Deuteronomy chapter 6. I just want to show you a couple of things from Deuteronomy 6. Uh, Commitment to your family, right? It it doesn't look like uh, 40, 50, 60 hour work week. It doesn't look like keeping the clean house. Of course, you need to, if that's what the Lord, if that's your stewardship, you need to do it. Uh, But when I'm talking about commitment to the family, I'm talking about a commitment to them that looks like Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 9. All right? And because of time, I won't read verse 1. I'll jump down to verse 4. Actually, let me read verse 2. He says, So that you and your sons and your grandsons might fear the Lord, your God. All right? Teach these lessons and do them so that you and your sons and your grandsons, all right? These are grandparents. Might, he says, fear the Lord your God. That's the target. Fearing God. Right? If you look down at verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God and shall worship him and swear by his name. The target in parenting is you might call it generational worship of God or generational fear of God. Right? We have to look at that big target. Right? The problem, the challenge is, and you all know this, is in parenting, or when you're you're babysitting, or whatever you're doing, you have the grandkids. Uh, the challenge is you get caught up in all of these little bitty battles, right? They always leave their Legos in the hallway. Right? You're probably sensing a Lego theme here. Um, you get caught up in those. You get myopic, so focused on those things that you lose the larger picture of what is my goal. My goal is to be faithful, right? My goal here is generational fear of God. It's worship of God. That's my target. That's what we're after. And the way that I accomplish generational fear of God is being faithful, Right now. All right? This is more than about Legos in the hallway. All right? This is about his soul. This is about his eternity. This is about my soul and my accountability before God. All right? So we want to think big picture. Generational worship. Generational fear of God. All right? Verse 5, he jumps down and he says, uh, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Right? That's priority number one. Love God. Verse 6, These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Right? They should so permeate who you are, they're on your heart. And then verse 7, you shall talk of them. So they're going to come out of you. 
because they're part of who you are. That's your commitment to the Lord and to your family. And it flows out in talking of them when you sit down and when you rise up, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Uh, you know, that's, that's all the time, right? You don't need to just think, all right, I need to be instructing my children. All right, I've got 9 o'clock a.m., that's when I do that. No, 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 no. It's by the poolside, right? It's on, on the way to your grandparents. It's coming to church. It's in the hallway. It's, it's everything you're doing. It's the whole milieu of your life. Look, that's verse 7. In verse 8, he says, You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on the gates. Now, that's not our Jewish friends. We love them, and they take this very literally. Uh, but you, this is not about writing it on your doorpost, you know, having a mezuzah, a little, then putting it on your door. That's not what it's about. This is about putting this on your heart. Right? You can't bind anything on your heart right? You know, physically. This is hiding God's word in your heart so much that it flows out in your life. Right? So you, want, you can't accomplish this commitment by writing scripture and posting it on your walls. That's a good thing. You should do it. Go ahead. But the word of God should so permeate you that your home is therefore full of it. Right? You are so full of God's word, so committed to your family, that you are teaching and modeling scripture in every milieu of life. That's the commitment. Taking God's word, God's, the fear of God, and passing it on to, gener- to generation after generation. In a word, we are to be modeling confidence in God before our children. Right? Every situation, every challenge, every trial is an opportunity to model confidence in God. Right? Don't You've got to watch hypocrisy. We have to, right? We teach God is sovereign and good and wise, right? And we teach our kids that. They memorize the verses. And then all of a sudden, we have a flat tire on the highway. What are they going to see? That's a moment where you're going to be a hypocrite or not, right? You're going to say, yeah, I believe we talk about this with our words, but now I have an opportunity. Am I changing this tire like a person who believes in a sovereign, good, loving God who orchestrates every event in my life for my good and for his glory. That's the target. Now we all fall, right? But that's our target. And when you fall, changing the tire, you get back in the car and you say, do you think I changed that tire to the glory of God? And everyone knows, no, you did not. We all saw you. We saw this, Dad. Um, How would a godly man respond? You know, and your wife says, well, you could have not thrown the, the wrench across the way. That would have helped. Uh, how would a godly man respond? Well, in that moment, the godly man looks and he says, okay, we believe that God is good and sovereign. Psalm 139 and 16 says that in, my, in his book were written every one of my days before there was yet one of them. This was written in God's book for me. Did I humbly receive that? No, I did not. I've sinned against you, wife. I've sinned against you, children. Would you forgive me? I've sinned against God first and foremost. Right? And you're modeling not just how to respond to a flat tire, but you're modeling how to repent and ask for forgiveness as well. All right? Come back in the next four weeks and you'll hear more about this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this wonderful responsibility that you've given us to teach and trust, and teach these kids that you've entrusted to our care, to model for them godliness. And Lord, we feel the weight. We all feel it this morning the weight of our own inadequacy. But Lord, you are so good to cover our failures with your grace. 
And we just pray that you would help us to press on and, and press on harder and harder to become your kind of parents. Lord, may we all here be found faithful, faithful parents, faithful grandparents, faithful future parents, and faithful influencers of children, Lord, when we stand before you. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.